without without the specialized strength exercises, you're never going to get maximum improvement. See, general exercises do not transfer. Only specialized strength exercises transfer. So you want transfer to occur. If that exercise is going to improve the skill execution or your performance, it must duplicate. There's no two ways about it. Be be nice of it if it did, mm. but it doesn't. See, not only did the Russians find this out and prove it, but I found it out. And, uh, that's why we ha- we do general exercises only in a one by twenty portion at the beginning. That's to develop the foundation. You want to develop all the muscles of the body to make sure everything is strong. Joints are strong. Now you're ready to go. Now let's get into the specialized. See, now we get into the skill execution part. That was Dr. Michael Yesis, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and I am thrilled to have Dr. Yesis back on the show. Uh, Previously, Doc was on episode 142, where he went in depth on the 1x20 strength training system. He also went in depth on the importance of not overdeveloping an athlete's general strength or in favor of their sports skill and what can happen when athletes continue to push their one rep, rep max well after it's reached its point of maximal transfer. So today's episode is going to build all on that last show where so we know skill is critical to win the game, and we've had episodes like Cameron, um, Cameron Joss and Fergus Connolly talking about the four coactive model and the technical and the tactical. And so in this realm, what we're going to get on the show today, this fits in with the uh, technical of that four coactive model. So we have the physical, the technical, the tactical, and the psychological. So this is a show that really fits in one of those quadrants squarely. And really, the more those quadrants we can cover in the show, I think we're winning. But anyways, I feel like for every 10 shows and articles there are on strength training, there's, there, you might get one on skill development. But at the end of the day, skill development is king. Um, not only how athletes, uh, if you are working with athletes in the strength and conditioning hat, there's the skill of how athletes pick up the lift themselves or start to move in a better physical capacity. But at the end of the day, they have to do their sports skills well. And so that's what this show has been, is all about. I, but at the end of the day, there's other elements that exist. And in the world of Dr. Michael Yesis, and you can read this in his book, uh, Building a Better Athlete, but there's the world of, first off, knowing sport biomechanics. So not only knowing weightlifting, but knowing the mechanics of sprinting, of jumping, of swinging, of throwing, of hitting, of kicking, of all these things that athletes do. And then knowing where in the weight room some special exercises can be inserted to help fill in those gaps that an athlete might have. And therein, uh, someone who works just in the strength and conditioning sector can potentially um, fill more elements of that for coactive model, which is really exciting. And so um, this show with Doc, he's going to go all into the evolution and relationships of a strength coach and sport coach. He's going to talk about something that I read in his books once, which is the Soviets' use of other games, uh, introducing other games in training uh, for the sake of mental relaxation. And then we're going to get all into skill building, mainline sports skills, some key components of those skills. Uh, Throwing is one we're going to get particularly into. Uh, We're also going to get into the idea of a perfect technique, special exercises, and what training might look like for an athlete who already has a requisite general strength 
and wants to get a little more uh, specific or needs more specific and technical mastery. Uh, we're also going to get a lot into change of direction and agility, which is always a little controversial. There's still some points where I'm making my mind up on that. And you can see there are some points on that where Doc and I might not see 100% eye to eye, but that Doc has done so many hours of video analysis and has such incredible knowledge and experience and, and learning from the Soviets. And he is always an amazing guy to talk to. He makes me think he makes me a better coach and I'm really excited to have him on the show. So that being said, uh, let's get on to episode 177, all about skill building for athletic performance. The main things that you need to know as a coach that encompass the bandwidth of sport and uh, let's get on to it. Episode 177 with Dr. Michael Yeses. Doc, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here today. Uh, my pleasure. So I know you've written for uh, some articles before on Just Fly Sports on the importance of skill acquisition. And I know that's a big thing now. I've done a lot of podcasts on reactivity and agility and change of direction and and as well as motor learning. And I really want to get your take on some of these things. So the first question I have for you is, well, what do you view the goal is of a, a strength coach versus a sport coach? And do you see this relationship of strength coach and sport coach evolving over time as we move forward in our industry? Well, I hope it does evolve where both the sports coach and the strength coach should get involved in skill, exec- um, skill acquisition. And the reason I say this is that skill in my estimation, skill determines your workout. Without looking at skill or the skill execution, your program is not the best that it can be. And it's really a very simple thing that we have a tendency to ignore, maybe because it is so simple. If we ask ourselves the question, what is the most important factor that determines success in sports. The one factor is skill. If you're a runner, you have to be able to run. If you're a quarterback, you gotta be able to throw. If you're a baseball pitcher, you gotta be able to pitch. So what is more important than that athlete's ability to do the skill in his sport? I think you had mentioned before that in the Soviet system, they didn't have a strength coach per se. The sport, the sport skill coaches were just versed in the strength training means. Yes, they, they didn't isolate it. The coach did it all. But see, he did it in relation to their skill. They did the exercises to help improve the skill. See, and transfer was a big thing at that time. You do the next exercise to see how it transfers to the skill execution. This is what you're trying to improve. Yeah, I, I know. Uh, I forget what book of yours it was, but I remember reading this, and I want to say it was maybe the either a basketball team or a soccer team, but they was they were playing another sport or something like that for part of their warm up, or uh, they would do different sports for. What, like, what, what was the deal with that? Because that's more general, right? I mean, obviously, there is some transfer from sport to sport to sport. But what was the story behind that? Right. I think that was the uh, uh, volleyball team. Um, it was, we were on a trip down to San Diego from L.A., and they saw a nice – they said, find us a nice field. 
and we got it, got them to a field, and everybody got off the bus, all the players, and they started playing soccer. I said, hey, you got a match tonight. Ah, no, this is just for relaxation. And they played all out. Uh, really tried hard. The ball went out of bounds. They had to run after it and bring it back in again and so on. Well, uh, I was trying to get them and interview them. There were some reporters there. He said, no, no, no. We, we changed sides now. There's no time now. And by the time they got done, we had to bust down to San Diego. And then they all, you know, crashed for a while. And they went out and played that night and beat the heck out of us. <laughs> Probably wouldn't do it today, but at that time they did. But they were in fantastic physical condition. And they knew the sport very well. And they would take a break by playing other sports. See, all their athletes played other sports. They were not solo athletes the way we see many of our athletes today. See, and they did this in youth because they found that the more skills that they learn, the greater is the motor development, which enables them to become even better in the one sport that they're going to specialize in. So they didn't do it just for the sake of learning more skills. They did it to improve the main skill. Interesting concept, isn't it? Yeah, I I like the as well what you said about they did it for that that particular day with the volleyball team playing soccer was for mental relaxation. It makes me think a little bit about the podcast I recently did with Fergus Connolly and Cameron Joss talking about the there's obviously physical and technical and tactical components to games, but also there's the psychological component. And I think that that psychological component often goes under appreciated by a lot of people but every all the soviet texts your stuff and super training and all these things i i you see the psychological element in there a lot it, it, it frequently appears so i'm assuming and not to sidetrack off a of skill acquisition this is just interesting to me yeah. um, but it seems like the soviets really had a, a they were really drawn towards the psychological state of the athlete and how to cater towards that as well as all the other things they were doing very much so they devoted much research to this area. Yeah, you have to be pretty confident in it, too, to play a different sport the day of. <laughs> Unless maybe they knew they were going to win anyways by a lot. and could do, But still, and I, I, I only ask that, too, because I just know that across the board in my experiences, whenever a team gets to play another sport, they just love it. It's, it's, it hits on emotional, mental, and, and psychological, psychological levels, as well as the physical training and the potential cross-pollination of skills and that, that element. And so I, I like that story from that book. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a very interesting uh, period in my life. Yeah. These uh, athletes and seeing what they did Yes, yeah. so different than uh, everything else, everything that we'd been doing over here, for sure. Uh, sure. So, well, back to the skill work. So, this is something I think, so with the division that we have, where there are, is the sport, the strength specialist, and looking at the evolution of the field, what are some mainline skills that a strength coach should be familiar with in the sense of, like most strength coaches know the deal about sprinting and acceleration because most sports have that or, but the skills such as throwing, sprinting, cutting, swinging things like what are some of the main skills that a strength coach should 
have a basic knowledge of biomechanics of to be able to serve athletes better? Well, they need all the basic skills, running, jumping, throwing, kicking, hitting. Uh, so five or six skills to really learn them and understand them. See, right now, I have seen very few strength coaches that even have a handle on what constitutes, for example, effective running. See, now we may take it for granted. Oh, I work with runners. So we think they know about running, but they don't. They just do exercises. And I ask them, why are you doing that exercise? Well, because it involves the quads. He needs it. Well, what, in what movement does he need it for? Well, it be, he just needs it. See, they, they can't pinpoint what that exercise is developing and for what purpose. For example, I think every strength coach does the squat, you know, for a runner. Oh, sure, squat is a good exercise for it. But how much squat do you need? How much strength do you need of the quads? What do the quads do in running? They are not involved in a push-off. See, and if you understand this, you don't spend that much time on it. The quads are only involved in keeping you from sinking down. Period. So, yes, you improve the strength of the quads, so you won't, you're more economical. So these are very important for a long-distance runner. Not as much for a sprinter. You don't care about economy. You're looking for speed. Uh, so other exercises, like I developed some specialized strength exercises for runners, like the knee drive, pull back. Um, I have a few others that, depending upon the athlete, he may need it. But these duplicate what the runner does in his running. So the specialized strength exercise becomes very important. It will definitely improve his running speed. There's no question about it. Because we're duplicating what the athlete does in execution of the skill. And if we duplicate it, it will transfer and it will improve. Or correct in some cases. See, I developed a whole system of correcting technique. If there are missing certain aspects of their skill execution, I come up with a strength exercise that duplicates what's missing where that exercise duplicates the same neuromuscular system or the same neuromuscular pathway as used in execution of that skill. So by doing that, they develop the correct execution. It's really a fascinating area when we take a look at how we can specifically target whatever is needed to improve that run or athlete or run or thrower or kicker, whatever it might be. Uh, do, you, do you do any, uh, you didn't, one thing you didn't mention, I was curious, uh, we just did this round table agility podcast a few weeks ago, but uh, change of direction is, or, or I guess I, the more I'm getting into this, the more I realize that change of direction and agility are two different things. Agility maybe being more reactive to opponent or change of direction, referring to the actual mechanics of direction change. What's your, 
What's your take on change of direct the skill of change of direction as far as what a coach should know regarding that? Uh, is there I mean, is there a general terms or general ideas, or does it come more down to individual sports in any cases, or is there any what's some of your thoughts on that? All right, uh, maybe two things if I might maybe make a little what I would call a correction. Uh, to me, agility, and this is the this is the uh, definition that I've seen in the sciences. The definition of agility is a change in direction while in motion. This is agility. So we, we can't really separate. And when we take a look at skill execution, let's say cutting action, this is the key to agility. You must learn how to execute a cut. This is where I find the biggest problem. Coaches are not teaching the correct skill execution. There are five things involved almost simultaneously when you're making a change in direction. The preparation, the actual stopping action, uh, the push off, the turning of the body, and so on. These are many things that happen simultaneously. That's why it's a tough skill to learn that first. But many people do, for example, ladder drills. That's going to improve my agility. I don't think so. I think it'll interfere with your agility. It's a negative because it does not duplicate what you do in the cutting action. You must learn the cutting action, and that's skill execution. Then you have your agility. It, it's really very simple, but yet we make it complex. We shouldn't. Do you think that um, in terms of the, or, or just semantically, uh, so if agility is to you is, is the change of direction mechanics, then maybe the an ath- athlete's reacting to another athlete on the field could be another word or another term. But what are your, what are your thoughts on if, if an athlete... Or the, all these skills. I mean, this could be anything. Oh, let me. I'm sorry, but let me interrupt you because I don't want to lose that train of thought. When you say, uh, "What do you do when the athlete has to make a choice?" You know, when do I cut? The reaction and so on. Uh, these come later. You don't start with this. You must first learn the skill execution. Once you learn the skill execution. Now, where can I apply it? So you can set up a scene or a scenario. Someone is coming at you, and he cuts to the right. What do you do? Now, you have to cut to the left. See, but you already know how to cut. That's why you can do it. But I I think sometimes, uh, I think I've read some of your podcasts there, or listened to them. They make it where, hey, this is a chaotic environment. Well, it shouldn't be. It's chaotic if the athlete doesn't know how to execute the movement that is necessary. We go back to our skill execution. Once they learn it, they can apply it. And you can set up uh, the situations in which he can apply it. That's how they learn. you got to give them that situation. <clears throat> 
Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. So, oh, no, I that's that's, that that's fine. I, I So kind of my take on what you're saying is in terms of people doing a perception reaction drill where the goal is to enhance the decision-making of the athlete, you're saying that that should be preceded by ensuring that an athlete's physical or biomechanical change of direction um, abilities are sound before they will get the most out of a perception reaction drill? Yes. Gotcha. Right. How many athletes would you say, because this is something that I, I am interested in this line of thinking, is how many athletes would you say do not change cor- direction correctly in your opinion in terms of how you see it? Like what percentage of, because uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a big innate skills guy in the sense of if someone grows up playing enough sports and has a diverse, you know, sport background, a lot of times these skills are learned automatically and on their own and don't necessarily need to be coached or interfered with. How, how, what percentage of athletes do you think have this uh, deficiencies where there needs to be an intervention? Now, I hope you don't think I'm a quack, but 95%, at least 95%. I can watch a football game and maybe one or two of the running backs can execute a correct uh, cut. A basketball game, like uh, Iverson, he was great. He had great cutting actions. That's what made him so great. But today, the majority of the players, no, they're not good. They don't know how to cut well. Very few. If you watch a game, and, and I do, and I look for these things in the game. Very few can execute it correctly. They don't. They don't learn. You see, it's not being taught. And because they can execute a cut, you take a look at most of the cuts. They take two or three steps. They take stutter steps. Taking stutter steps is not effective cutting, especially in football. Stutter steps. Boom, boom, boom. Two or three steps just to stop, and then they change direction. That's not effective. That takes time. A good cutting action is executed in one step. Hmm. You see the name for good, the need for good physical abilities. I wonder, I mean, I obviously I probably haven't, I'll say I haven't looked into it nearly as intensely as you have, but do you think, what about someone who might say that some of those littler steps might be present because an athlete is still trying to make a decision about the ball and is is still adjusting the course, if you will. Wouldn't you need to have a good reaction to make a solid, confident one step cut? Don't they? Wouldn't they work in tandem, in your opinion? Oh, sure. yes, sure. Um, but see, by that stage, when they're playing, let's say on a pro level, the cutting action should be automatic. There's no thought involved. All the thinking is involved in relation to the ball and what you're trying to do, and avoiding the person. And if you're looking at someone in, in, in front of you and you want to even elude him, this should be automatic. There's no thinking involved. And if you have to think about it, you're never going to be successful. It means you have not mastered the skill of executing a cut. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to share with you a little bit about what our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, now has available in their store. 
You hear me mention in the outro of the show all the time about the free lap timing system in the K-Box, which I have and use regularly. But today I wanted to share a little bit more about the bar speed monitoring units that Simply Faster has, which is the GymAware and the new portable flex unit. So let me start with the GymWare. I mention it regularly on the show. It's been referred to as the Cadillac of bar speed monitors. Carl Valley calls it a lab inside a lunchbox, as the readings you get out of the GymWare go well beyond typical concentric or just up the up phase of the lift velocities. Rather, you can measure the entire shape of the barbell lift in terms of eccentric velocity, range of motion, and total work done. Total work being awesome, by the way, especially like comparing a long-armed bench presser or a 6'10", squatter versus a 511 point guard so you're getting all these extra metrics that you're not getting on other units it's perfect for teams wanting to manage the weight room and the data synchronizes to software platforms such as coach me plus team builder and athlete monitoring so new to the store is the flex which is the ultra portable and lower price travel version of the coach's favorite gym aware so just like the gym where the flex measures the shape of each rep range of motion total work done eccentric dynamics so for this and the gym aware, this is the advantage that a force plate would have over just knowing how high you jumped. You're getting many other metrics and information that go into this unit of work. Compared to similar portable bar speed monitors, this unit gets the entire rep rather than a fraction. So you have here two awesome tools. And if you're interested in upping your game in the velocity-based training and bar speed world, I would definitely recommend heading to the store at simplyfaster.com and checking into these two units. All right, let's get back to the show. Hmm. One thing that I've been thinking about, um, and I'll have to, to me, uh, just that, so from a general perspective of more versus less steps, that's something I'll have to keep my eye on from now. I'm, I'm curious, um, I, I, you've, you've got my curiosity going on that element of things in tandem with, with decisions and mechanics and things like that. I, what's your take on this? And I just did, I did a podcast recently with, Rafe Kelly, a uh, big move, human movement, motor learning, and parkour guy in the uh, Pacific Northwest. And I was listening to him on a podcast talk about um, the idea of a, a quote-unquote, I guess, perfect technique for a person or demanding uh, perfection or technical model. Now, with each of these uh, skills, like how close, how many things, is there an absolute perfect model at the end of the road for each of these? Or... Is there a good enough, you're within the bandwidth of what most good athletes do, and there's some free play, we can move on to something else. Um, what is your take on how good should these skills be within the bandwidth of what the elites do versus like a, a perfect a perfect end of the road idea? I, I hate to use the term perfect. See, for each athlete, there's a perfect execution. They have to learn it in relation to their physical abilities. So that's why everybody is not the same. We can all look different in terms of the range of motion, the speed of execution, and so on. But we need an ideal model to use as our basis for teaching. We will teach it this way. But as the athlete is learning the skill, he is modifying it in relation to his own abilities. So he's not really duplicating the whole thing. He starts with this. This is the, present, uh, the premise. But it's modified. So we're not trying to make him, we're not putting him in the mold so he comes out looking exactly like this. No, this is what they learn. Think about it. 
and then they execute according to their own abilities. Yeah. So the last there, there is a, a bandwidth and then the, there's individualization. And so, right. yeah, I would agree. I certainly would agree with you there. I, it's some of these other skills. I know we, we just talked about cutting and steps. I know Jeff Moore has mentioned that the idea of how many steps on recent podcasts, uh, in terms of, I think a skill, uh, I, th- I think a lot about the skills of throwing and, and things like throwing and swinging, throwing in particular, I think is a basic innate human skill. But I think that if I almost had to have an order of, of what coaches tend to look at skills, I think sprinting is always number one, then maybe jumping a little bit. And then, I mean, shoot, I don't even, I can't even tell you what the proper kick mechanic, I don't work with soccer players though, but I don't, I, I, I can in context of triple jump and track and field jumps, but uh, I'm getting away from that a little bit though. What, in terms of throwing, what are some key indicators or key ideas in the act of throwing that you're looking at? What are some key errors that you're looking for and how are you going to be fixing them? All right. So when I take a look at a thrower, I have to first decide, are we looking at mainly force production or accuracy or a combination of both as, for example, a baseball pitcher? If we look at a um, shot putter or discus thrower, it's all force production. Accuracy is is a minor player. We have a great range of motion, you know, a great field in which to throw. All right, then we have to take a look at all of the key components. And these, by the way, are all spelled out in great detail in my book, Explosive Hitting. I just finished it not too long ago. Uh, But the whole thing is revolved, well, throwing and hitting are basically the same. But more to the point, let's take a look at weight shift. In weight shift, we have to transfer or shift the hips forward. Now, to hit is the weight shift of the hips alone, and then when we combine it with the stride, is the stride does the stride precede the uh, the hip transfer, or is it done together with it, or does it follow the hips? All of these become important in terms of how much force is produced. Then after the the, uh, the weight is shifted or transferred, we have rotation of the pelvis. Is it off the forward leg, in the middle of the body, or off the rear leg? All of these contribute different amounts of power. Ideally, the greatest amount of power is off the forward leg, because that's where you have the longest lever of the hip of the hips from left to right. In the middle, one side's going forward, the other side's going backward, so it's neutral. And if it's off the rear leg, then you're driving the weight backward. All right, so after the hip rotation, hip rotation is it executed without involvement of the shoulders, or do the shoulders rotate with the hips? These have to be corrected. And this is probably one of the biggest errors I find. Most athletes rotate hips and shoulders together, what I call a body swinger. But if they learn to do the hips first and the shoulders remain stationary, then you got the greatest amount of torquing of the abdominal rotational muscles. And once you have that maximum torque, then the shoulder rotation comes in and it'll whip those shoulders around very, very forcefully. So then after the shoulder rotation, 
uh, and each of these occurs on a tail end of each joint action. So there's a, it's really quite complex but simple. Each action has to be done independently, but the next action has to occur prior to the ending of the previous action. So it, ha it hooks on at the end in order to get the transfer of the momentum or force built up in that action into the next action. And then that's combined with the force produced by that action, which is then transferred into the next action. And that's why we get a culmination of maximum force at the very end. Um, so after the shoulder rotation, it stops perpendicular to the flight line. Then the arm action occurs. And here the arm action will depend upon the implement that you're handling. A baseball pitcher does other things. A shot putter does other things. A uh, discus thrower is different. So we can't get into the arm actions uh, because they're all different. Yeah, that's where the, the uniqueness really shows up in, in, in that, I'm sure. Uh, baseball being yeah significantly different than a shot put. I Within the scope of that, like something that's very simple that most strength coaches would use or uh, real, I mean, or sport coaches as well too, would be using medicine balls, like throwing a medicine ball into the wall to work perhaps the hip action. You meant, you mentioned the front leg being a more important force producer really than the back leg in like the stopping action. What would you, what would you be recommending or if, if someone was going to do was working with a rotational athlete they're throwing a med ball into the wall. What are some mainline cues or ideas you're going to have them do to help improve that front leg action or the way the hips transfer weight? Well, first I would master the uh, tr uh, weight transfer without any throwing. This takes a while. The athlete has to learn how to transfer the hips or shift the hips with no rotation of the shoulders. What I find most athletes don't have the flexibility needed to get that maximum separation, or as we used to call it, the X factor in the old days. Mm -hmm. I remember that. Yeah. So in order to get that maximum separation, you need the flexibility in the waist. And for that, you have to do the reverse trunk twist or the Russian twist. So see, this is how I... See, here's your, here's your training program coming up. You want to develop a better throwing athlete, we have to take a look at what he's not doing or what he is doing. Now, here's an exercise he must do in order to develop the ability to get maximum force out of the shoulder rotation. Uh, it's, and I find this is where most athletes, they do both at the same time. I would say a good 80-90% of all athletes are body throwers. They don't separate the hips from the shoulders. They combine them. Mainly because of lack of flexibility or for whatever reason, I don't know. See, and then throwing a ball into a wall, well, yes, it's rotation, but are you using the whole body? Are you using only shoulders? Are you using only hips? So you have to take a look at these factors. Most coaches have the athletes do it, 
but I see very few that are corrected or that are trying to emphasize one action or the other. What is the action you're trying to improve? Then make sure it's being done. If it's not being done, you're not going to get that improvement. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. So in the in the skill acquisition section of a, a sports performance coach, or really just really in the field in general, like with sport coach or sports performance, we're all working towards the same thing essentially. It really all comes down to uh, outside of the, the the general weightlifting piece. I think some of the general things um, that we talked about last podcast. Essentially, it's you're finding the weak biomechanical link, and and you're giving uh, more exposure to that link. Weak biomechanical link in a skill, and you're giving more exposure to that specific link in the weight room to create uh, to get closer to the biomechanical model. That is correct. How how close do you think that? What's your take on being able to resolve those skills if you? Uh, just w- within the scope of the coach itself, and you didn't have special exercises, uh, but if, if it was just a sport coach, uh, do you think that those, and it was a, a really good sport coach, a good motor learning person, do you think that you could get equally good eventual skill acquisition without the use of special exercises, or do you feel like those really are needed to shore up biomechanical gaps, even if you have an expert coach? Yes, I believe they are needed. Uh, without without the specialized strength exercises, you're never going to get maximum improvement. See, general exercises do not transfer. Only specialized strength exercises transfer. So you want transfer to occur. If that exercise is going to improve the skill execution or your performance, it must duplicate there's no two ways about it. Be be nice of it if it did, mm. but it doesn't. See, not only did the Russians find this out and prove it, but I found it out, and uh, that's why we ha- we do general exercises only in a one by twenty portion at the beginning. That's to develop the foundation. You want to develop all the muscles of the body to make sure everything is strong. Joints are strong. Now you're ready to go. Now let's get into the specialized. See, now we get into the skill execution part. So in the course of a training year, let's just say this is for a athlete who has reached some level of maturity. Or maybe we can do a couple of scenarios. Like the first, well, let's, let's say two scenarios. First, an athlete who is at a lower level of maturity, maybe they're 15, 14, 15 years old. They still can improve in the world of general strength, but obviously... They're always improving in skills too. How would you treat an athlete like that throughout the course of a training year versus an athlete, let's say they're 19 or 20, they've gone through resistance training throughout high school, they have a fair level of general strength for what their sport and they need more skill work. What is the training years going to look like for each of these athletes? Or what are some general principles for each of these types of athletes as you are pushing them forward into their highest abilities? That's a very interesting question. Uh, I say interested, interesting, mainly because I find I must treat both athletes the same. This higher level athlete is still lacking in some respects. 
the lower level athlete is lacking in some respects, but not the same necessarily. So we have to individualize a little bit more so that more advanced person would have both specialized and general. The younger one, depending upon his skill execution, would be mainly general with some specialized. So it's the ratio of how many and what is needed. But each one has to be looked at individually. This is why that you know principle of individualization is so important. You can't treat everyone the same. You must individualize the workout. You must look at their technique execution. You must see where they are lacking. What do they need? And then establish the training program around it. it it's a difficult concept, uh, but yet it makes sense. But yeah. if you have a set program, hey, here's a canned program. So you see these programs online. Hey, this, you're going to go into this phase of training. This is what you should be doing. Well, for general conditioning, that's great. For an athlete, it's disaster. Because the more general work you do as an athlete, especially on the higher levels, the worse the athletes you're going to become. You know, you're probably familiar with this. They've done many studies of college athletes. They tested them at the beginning as freshmen. You know, when they're sprinting, throwing, jumping, and so on. All the general skills. They tested them on their way seniors. There was no improvement. After four years of conditioning, four years of training, and no improvement in their speed, jumping ability, throwing, etc. Now, some athletes, of course, will show improvement. Others are going to be poorer. They're going to be worse. That's why it levels off to where there's no improvement. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I know Yeah, there's definitely a shortcoming when we only look at things through the view of general strength. And I, one of the podcasts I recently did with Miguel Aragoncio in working with baseball pitchers was talking about just that, and athletes who would increase their strength by X amount, but they're not. that's not going to transfer into a, a pitching speed at, once you've achieved, achieved a certain level of general strength. I was curious though. So what age you mentioned an athlete who lacks a younger athlete lacks general strength needs to improve that. Uh, you, you wouldn't focus as much on the technique and, and skill, but you, you said you would have some special exercises in there. What, what age do you start with those I, in the sense of how long do you give an athlete to refine or perfect their technique to a level just through playing the sport alone, playing other sports, developmental, being skilled? How long do you give them before you start to bring in um, an extra movement to help the, a special strength, a special exercise? How, how long before you start to really start hammering or chipping away at technique with that? When they're nine years old, you should start right in the ages of nine to 12. These are the ideal ages for improving skill execution. When you, the older you get, you can still do it, but it becomes tougher and tougher and longer and longer. So skill execution should be looked at primarily at the beginning. This should be the main focus. And as you're looking at the skill execution, yes, where you must come in with some specialized exercises. 
is sometimes they dovetail. Like just developing the foundation, you want to develop the uh, hip flexors. Well, the knee drive is, is great for that, but it's also a specialized exercise. So that's how we can combine the two. The paw back, there's your hip extension. That's one of the joint actions that's needed. Then you have hip abduction. Well, that might come out in some other sport where, you know, you transfer of weight. So it's, it's not hard to come up with some specialized exercises depending upon the sport that we're dealing with. But skill execution must start very early. Sure. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that because how many college coaches have gotten an athlete who have been taught incorrectly or mm-hmm. have severe mechanical flaws that take X amount of time, a significant amount of time, or, or can never be completely removed, and to make sure athletes come up correctly initially. I guess I ask about the special exercises just because I, I've always thought about uh, heavily about if an athlete's exposed to a big enough library of movement skills and they are good at something, you know, how much do you really need to do versus an athlete who doesn't show as much. But that was, the, so the Russians were doing that though, the age nine, 10, 11, they were, they were usually utilizing the special strength exercises at those ages. I suppose it would depend on the sport a little bit too. Like maybe some athletes started earlier versus later. Oh yes. Like gymnastics, you got to start when you're young because you're already peaking when you're, mm-hmm. you know, a young teenager. So depending upon when you peak, you have to work backwards and establish the norms that way. But uh, see, learning or playing a sport does not improve your skill execution. It might minimally. It does not improve your strength. It may improve some endurance for, you know, playing a longer game, but not necessarily with good skill execution. See, we have a tendency today of playing more and more and more. Well, the more you play and the less you train, the poorer the athlete will be. How many kids who play one sport all their lives become great and go into the pros? Who are the best players in the pros? Usually they're the athlete that played multiple sports. It's rare to find an athlete who only played one sport and made it to the bigs. So, yeah. yeah I, I, my, my curiosity comes, and maybe this is, um, well, well, a couple things. One, I, I guess I think about it in the sense of, uh, well, I'll say this. I, I, I look at running a lot, and I watch children run, and I watch and I work with young uh, club track athletes. And I see a lot of young sprinters running pretty well. And then I see the effects of, uh, Charlie Francis mentioned this a lot about having to undo technique later that was learned because a coach told the athlete the wrong thing, like move your arms like this, but it was incorrectly or (laughs) things like that. And I see a lot of young athletes, at least in running. And I think running maybe is the most innate and primal thing we possibly do. We've been doing it ever since we were two. So versus something that's more complex like like i think throwing and i mean we definitely are throwing is innate too for sure but the more complex skills perhaps could fall off a little bit more compared to running i just know that i see running and it's not like it's not to say that everyone just runs perfectly no matter what and they don't need any intervention i don't agree with that at all either 
but um, I'm I'm just I I feel so essentially what you're saying is is as soon as an athlete is doing a sport there's going to be some flaws that exist early special strength is a big part of shoring those up later on so 14 15 16 or when whenever general weight training then that general weight training is administered and maybe i'm getting ahead of myself a little bit but um so it's pretty much any athlete is being given special strength exercises in accordance with the what the sport skill is early all right two things i'd like to comment on if i may um running is innate all sports are innate but only up to a very low level. Like, for example, take swimming. Swimming is probably a good example. You don't throw somebody in the water and say, okay, start doing a crawl stroke. They're going to do the dog paddle. That's the innate part. But to learn the crawl or the backstroke and so on, these must be taught. Same thing with running. Yes, everyone can run but not very effectively. If you want to improve the running, it must be trained. Same thing with throwing. You want to improve the throwing, it must be trained. You can't rely on what is innate. See, and this has even been proven when we take a look at genetics. You are born with the ability to do X, Y, Z. This is what I think you say is innate. But... There are no genes that have that. We do not have the genes that allow us to automatically say, I, I know how to do this. I was born with it. Coaches use this, I think, as an excuse for why an athlete is great. Oh, he was born with it because they don't know what to do to make him better. So he was born with it. See, and this is typical... Uh, if, if I may, of baseball coaches. I'm very disappointed in baseball coaches. They know less about technique and training than any other sport in any other sport. Uh, it's amazing. But anyway, I'm getting off topic. Sure. Uh, but the point here, yes, things are innate, but on a very low level. You must train to become better. Sure. I, I can't say that I agree with you entirely for, with the running and swimming at least portion ne- needing to be taught, but I, I can definitely agree with you in the sense of your seal. I would say we everyone has an innate ceiling that your innate level, your innate ceiling in the skill will take you this far. You, this person's innate ceiling in the skill will take them this far. Uh, I think some people's innate skill will take them significantly farther than others in that skill versus some people's innate skill in something is not that good and well maybe they just need to play another sport but no i i hope you get i hope you understand what i'm saying would you agree that some people at least have more of a innate capacity than than others like some people could reach an extremely high level just through innate alone whereas others are going to need extra help very early on sure no no question about it uh but these are the athletes that have more refined or better developed uh neuromuscular reflexes See, and the more experiences the athlete has, the more he develops these reflexes, which in turn allow him to go to a higher level. But somebody who, let's say, sits on his butt all his life, he's going to be unable to do anything like this. 
he doesn't have the, the reflexes developed. So we can say, oh, he doesn't have the innate ability. Well, it's not so much the innate ability. He doesn't have the neurological development that he should have had if he had participated in many different sports or in many different type activities to develop these reflexes, which allow him to become even better. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that with the natural athlete being reflexively great or even in uh, in a podcast I've recently done with Christian Thibodeau, he talked about how athletes who have a higher, and there's probably more to it than just this neurotransmitter, but a high acetylcholine in their um, nervous system or running through their um, body, they can they they are reflexively better, just just innately reflexively better than the other than other athletes. And I think we see athletes who are like that. But um, yeah, I, I I definitely understand what you're saying, what you're saying, and I think regardless, it definitely does highlight the importance of playing a lot, a diverse skill set early on to build the foundation to raise your innate level. Um, and that would be the same thing. Like you said, that was thing I was having trouble with. You said that just playing the sport doesn't make you better at the skill, but I would say it does. You, you are through repetition, but you're, are you really saying it just doesn't make you, it only makes you better up to a particular level and then it will ceiling. I'm assuming that's what you meant by that. Yes and no. Uh, let's say for example, it'll improve your shooting. But if you really want to improve the shooting, you need more practice of shooting. Now, if this is part of your practice, then yes, you're going to become better by playing, quote unquote. But actually playing the game, all your concentration is on how do I get the ball? How do I get a shot? How do I stop him from going? It's all strategy related. I see what you're saying. So you become better strategy wise, but not skill execution wise yeah all skills must be trained and learned this is i think the point i'm trying to make uh, yeah uh, and i disagree with the concept of an innate or a natural athlete all athletes are learned athletes they learned all of these things they weren't born with them if you are born with them then i agree with you you're innate but we, we don't see this it does not happen it's all learned, and it's learned through repetition, correct repetition. And this has been borne out, I think, by some, uh, I think they're in Florida, I don't remember their name, but there are a few people have been doing a lot of study on what makes a great athlete, what made these athletes great, or what does make anybody great. They looked at all the greatest people in the world, including the athletes, and the conclusion was, repetition they had to repeat and repeat and repeat until it was mastered then they became great yeah i, I get what you're saying now with the just playing the sport because i for some reason i was just thinking of just playing the sport as encapsulating extra shooting practice and extra you know discipline i for sure that's where i think i was losing you like yeah. like like focused work on on the parts of the sport that eventually get back into the hole because yeah if you're just playing the sport it's more probably on tactical and then you go work on technical outside of that or that that makes sense to me now I understand that um anything anything more on your end on that uh, before I get to the next question uh, no it, it, it's just like a general comment 
sure. how we sometimes take these things for granted. Oh, playing is the way to do it. But see, what's involved in the playing? It's not just playing the game, but it's the practices. It's the practices that improve, you know, the ability of the athlete to perform the skills, etc. It's the training uh, that really makes them better. Yeah, for sure. Or I, or you, perhaps you could even say other forms of play at some time, like Brazil, Brazilian futsal versus like small-sided games versus large-sided games, or just things that squeeze different elements of the sport itself into a more compressed format. Or like you said, shooting around or playing three-on-three basketball where it's a compressed, uh, it's not full court and athletes, half court and athletes can be more creative and they're they're honing that side of the game or something like that. But that makes sense that if you just did the same skill, the same sport, even uh, as a high jump coach, I always felt like back when I was coaching track and field full-time, I was always thinking to myself of how if, and you see it, if all you ever do is high jump, the singular event, you run into a rut really fast and your your body really doesn't like it because it's all pressure on one joint system in one way. But if you go and do different plyometrics, you get distributed. You can really distribute the way that you're producing force or playing basketball for the sake of um, high jump. There's different little concentrations rather than just doing, if you all you did is high jump over and over again, anyone who's high jump knows that that's not the best way to do it. You have to get out and do, you have to sprint and do other plyometrics and you have to, so I suppose it could all, it's really all the same thing in some way. Yeah, I, I agree there. Uh, well, hey, Doc, I think that's all the time I have for the show today, but thanks for being on again. I really appreciate your uh, time, knowledge, and wisdom uh, in contributing to this show. Oh, glad to do it, Joel. Uh, Happy to do it anytime. Thanks for tuning in for another show. Appreciate you listening and being a part of what we are doing. If you enjoy this, a way that you can help is heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. We really appreciate it, and it really helps us out in spreading the word of this show. Also, please visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. They've been an awesome supporter of what we do, and you can find many awesome pieces of training in their store. You've heard in the, the mid-roll, the gym wear and flex, as well as favorites like the free lap timing system and much more. So check them out. We'll be back next week with another great guest. Have a good one.